Data Engineering Brief. Hello everyone, welcome to Data Engineering Brief, or The Brief for short. My name is Igor Masyagin, Dr. Igor Masyagin, and I'm a data platform engineer at Klarna. And my name is Pasha Finkelstein. I'm developer advocate for data engineering at JetBrains, and we will be your hosts today. But by the way, what do we have today? Today we have several hot updates, five lightning news, and at least one interesting discussion. Stay tuned. The first hot update we want to discuss today is release of Apache Geot 1.12.5. We didn't agree on how to pronounce Geot or Geot, so we will be flexible in this sense. But please okay. tell us more. Yeah, uh, what should we know? This release of Apache Geot is not that big. It's just support release for 1.12 branch and the actual la latest branch is 1.14. But I think I consider this as very interesting opportunity to discuss what is Apache Geode and when do we need it. Apache Geode is a product which is called Gemfire when it's used in enterprise as paid product. But of course, it's Apache, so you can install Geode for yourself. What is basically Apache Geode? It's geo-distributed storage or geo-distributed cache, if you wish. It has native clients in several languages, in uh, Java, C-sharp, and C++. This is very unusual set of clients. They, of course, have REST client, but if you want to have native experience, you should write in one of three main supported languages. Which one is your favorite in of those three? Yeah, my, my, my favorite is Java, of course, and I would use Kotlin because it's fully compatible with, uh, with Java. And of course, it it will it will work with uh, Jolt. It is actually true that when I see that there is official client for Java, that I can use any Java derivative for that tool. I believe yes, or most probably yes. Uh, API of Apache Jolt is quite simplistic, so it should be supported even in languages like Clojure, which are not too popular in data engineering for some reason. So far, so far, so far, of course. Interesting thing there, it supports. JTA compile and transaction support. JTA stands for Java Transaction API. It's an API, it's a standard which describes how your transaction should behave, like what guarantees it gives you and what actual calls you should use to support these transactions. And interesting question here, Igor, why do we need caching and data engineering at all? Uh, well, I would say that the ca caching is probably a very confusing word in the sense of data engineering. Typically, you don't really talk about caching when we do data engineering related tasks. But you can say that uh, if we have some sort of uh, service that consumes data from our lake house or data warehouse or our data storage facility, that needs to be in some prepared form and maybe updated every few hours or daily or something like that. That would be the case when you use a system that's usually defined for caching solution. I can actually see at least one more use case for actual caching. For example, if you have some stateful stream processing, where do you store your, stream, your state? You, you can store it in Flink stores it in RocksDB by default. But of course, you can use storage of your, of your choice. For example, you could use Redis. But Redis has some draw drawbacks, right? Well, 
Yeah, depending on what usage are we talking about? Do you mean states like saving checkpoints in your calculations or something? Um, uh, for example, we can save some result of API call to reuse it later. I believe that saving checkpoints is not the best case for Redis, right? Yeah. Yeah, but, but when, we, when we are talking about stateful process, stream processing, we actually sometimes, sometimes we need some state, some state not of our stream itself, but of data in the stream. Like what did we calculate it? Uh, what did we calculate? up to this point mm. and usually we start, we start hitting limits of, of uh, what redis can provide us and we want to scale it and there is such thing called redis cluster but it looks like there is some area of improvement in this solution let's put it this way <laughs> and other thing in redis is redis sentinel but it's not actually clustering it's actually a high availability mode of redis when only one node actually source requests and also it won't work if you if we are talking about something like geo distributed caches and Jode can potentially solve this thing for you it solves uh, issue of cache coherence issue of invalidation and all other consequential thing uh, problems of uh, working with cache so it's a cache that can be geographically bounded like say for gdpr you need to have your data inside the european union and not allowed to leave or at least uh, you should not do that often and then you have like a transaction api or something right for that yeah and also we have rest api which kind of gives us ability to work with this Jode from any language, for example, from Python. Actually, Python has an official client made by Pivotal, which is daughter company of uh, VMware, which is daughter, co uh, daughter company of Dell EMC. And I'm not sure if it's not daughter company of something else. That's a lot of daughters. Yeah, lots of uh, grand granddaughters, actually, and maybe grand granddaughters. But it's an official and internally it utilizes the same REST API, which kind of makes sense. If you have REST API, why, don't, why won't you use it? But if you want a JTA compliant, compliant transactions, of course, you should use Java derivative languages, Scala, Java, Kotlin, Clojure, you name it. Let's move on. Yes. In other news, Pino, Apache Pino, again, Apache project released uh, version 0.9.0. And uh, again, we'd like to talk of what Pino is and what was the main change that they released recently. And the main change they released in this update is a segment merge and the rollup, which are techniques to do group by for data that can be presented as a tree. For example, you have an income stats for, your, for a city and you want to calculate it on different levels, like by street, uh, region of your city, uh, by metro stations, or by districts and uh, for the whole city, of course, as well. That's when you use uh, Rollup. And uh, generally, Pinot is a really interesting project. It's made by guys from LinkedIn and Uber. So because it, because of the fact that it's made by people from LinkedIn, there are some dependencies on tools like Zookeeper, but they have their own solution that can replace Zookeeper for their particular case. And uh, Pinot itself is a column-oriented database that is focused on real-time analytics. In BI tools, you can say that there is two types of uh, products. One is used for dashboards and reports, like uh, 
I would argue that Tableau for is, is one of them. And uh, the others are made more for exploration. So when you know that there are tables and you want to just briefly draft stuff and uh, take a look on what's stored where and maybe draw some preliminary KPIs. And uh, I don't know, like Looker maybe and ClickSense are examples of that. And Pinot can be used as a data source for those systems. It has a near real-time ingestion from streams like Kafka, Kinesis, and it can even do a batch ingestion from Hadoop or F3. And it has some nice uh, web UI for uh, SQL-like uh, curing of the data. It has its own language, but it's not uh, it's not strict SQL. It's called PQL, I guess, Pinot uh, Curer language. Yeah, these days everybody call the SQL subsets something QL. Yes. ClickHouse has uh, CQL, Cassandra has CQL2, Pino has uh, PQL, and I would not be surprised if Druid has DQL. <laughs> yeah, so I, I would say that the most uh, suggested case of usage of Pino is you ingest streams from Kafka and you want to display them in, say, Superset, and you want to have them as fast as possible. By the way, why do we have several... Uh analytical databases with basically same goals, ClickHouse, Druid, and Pinot is three I'm aware of on-premise open source solutions. ClickHouse, Pinot, and what was the third one? Druid. Druid, yeah. Well, Druid, it's a lot of memory, as we all know. <laughs> I would assume that Pino is more gentle in that sense. And ClickHouse, uh, I would say, is not that popular or was not that popular up to a recent moment. And I think Pino is at least a few years older than ClickHouse, but I'm not sure about that. Yeah, but still, ClickHouse already supports joins and Pino doesn't, right? Yeah, Pino has a statement that it doesn't support joins, but you can use like Trino or PrestoDB to to do that, and that was uh, also the case for ClickHouse a few years ago. So yeah, it's a nice thing to have one query engine over another query and engine. Like uh, Trino over Hive makes perfect sense, right? Yes. Just kidding. Redis on top of that. <laughs> yeah. So suggested uh, case of uh, BI is to use uh, Tableau superset, right? Mm, yeah. Yes. Okay, uh, sounds interesting. And let's move on. Uh, then let's move on. Uh, the next interesting thing is RocketMQ re released. If you don't know what is uh, RocketMQ, we are not actually surprised because we didn't know also. But actually, it's also Apache project. It's also MQ stands for Message Queue. It's built on uh, ActiveMQ. ActiveMQ is quite a well-known solution in enterprise Java world, but I'm not even sure that anybody uses it outside Java enterprise world. But still, it gives you several interesting strict guarantees, the same JTA capabilities, Java Transactional API. And also, what's interesting, ActiveMQ itself cannot be clustered. And it's, um, it's a major issue for huge enterprises. Again, you can build a high, high, highly available ActiveMQ, but it won't be clustered. All nodes won't work at the same time. It's solved somehow in RocketMQ. And also what's interesting, uh, they like uh, to compare RocketMQ to Kafka, and they say that Kafka still needs Zookeeper usually. We can say that Kafka doesn't need Zookeeper in latest release, but this statement has some re real limitations as far as I know. Also, folks from RocketMQ are focusing on building a perfect configuration of Rocket RocketMQ out of the box. 
And also folks there say that Rocket and Q has a rich web interface. It's quite an interesting thing because as far as I know, only RabbitMQ provides users customers with some, some useful web interface with real monitoring and uh, different settings and so on. Other message queues I'm aware of, like uh, Kafka, provide uh, users only with something quite basic. Well, Kafka doesn't have a web interface out of the box at all. You can get a um, Confluent solution, kind of Kafka Enterprise, with a Confluent Control Center, but it's not built into the Kafka. And we can say basically the same about other popular message queues. Mm -hmm. I know one message queue that has built-in web interface. Which one? NSQ. Oh, I uh, I didn't ever seriously cons consider investigating it. Yeah. Is it is it really something interesting? Well, not really. It's just a few buttons there, so you can. It's very basic. Okay. So when can we use uh, RocketMQ? Folks from there say that they're of course biased, but they think that RocketMQ is better than Kafka in many aspects, starting from absence of need in Zookeeper and ending with, uh, I don't know, trans transaction support. But what they don't do, they don't provide us with the benchmarks of performance in terms of consuming and producing in messages. And for many of us, it's very important. As usual, you will find link to the description of RocketMQ and this release in show notes. It's very sad that we consider that not depending on Zookeeper is something worth mentioning. Yeah, it's it's just a state of the engineering industry, right? Can you describe what is the perfect uh, configuration they're mentioning? No, I can't actually. They they just say that everything is set up for you. Trust us. Go and use it. Yeah, kind of trust us. Let's move on. Okay. Let's move on. Let's move on. Yeah, one of the fantastic news from a world of small data is that SQLite has released an update that uh, finally supports some sort of stricter type checks. A few people claiming that they've been waiting for it update for at least 20 years. Basically what it does is that it allows to define tables in a strict manner so that when you try to insert data in that table, it will try to convert the data to a particular type. And then if, uh, if it fails, it will raise an error. If it managed to convert it to a type, it will write it. And uh, for example, you have a string that is actually a number and that will be cast to an integer and then it will be stored as integer. Before this update, SQLite was not really that careful about types and you could have stored basically anything in the columns and the table definitions contained types, of course, but it was sort of a suggestion to your data and not really something that you're going to use. And uh, the author is a very well-known supporter of flexible typing in general. He has a very good um, a piece of documentation, you can say, on the SQLite website, which I encourage you to read, where he discusses in details of why he thinks that flexible data types, especially when you do data analysis, is uh, better than just trying to force types everywhere and suffer the consequences. But yeah, finally, he gave up on the idea of not implementing this feature and implement it in some way. And uh, he also states that if you find a solution where that actually helped you, please uh, reach out and he will mention that in, in the side document because he do, he doesn't believe that it's actually useful. It's a very interesting thing that Walt, Walt is somehow moving to type to type things. I mean, from untyped, untyped Python 
to somehow type Python, and who knows, maybe in future we'll see some strong typing in Python. And from, I don't know, closure to Haskell, and from untyped SQLite to type to SQLite. Okay, okay, of course, closure to Haskell was joke, and Python is semi-joke. Yeah, well, I think for, for Python, there would be fanatics that will just release a typed version of Python and force some people to use it, like we have with TypeScript and JavaScript. But I really hope it will never become very popular. Be the main speed. Yes. Okay, uh, sounds fair. By the way, why, do, why don't you like uh, strong typing? Uh, I would agree that I rarely find it useful if I'm not uh, developing something that is really close to hardware. When I do uh, fool around with my Arduino, then I usually use uh, typed stuff. And uh, when I just want to process my data, I don't really care that much of uh, what, what, what data type of the thing I'm storing. I don't think I ever had a problem of uh, weird type error in Python, but I do remember that there was a few cases when I was uh, sending some data over network and because I used wrong types, it ended up in a wrong package. And uh, I think it was one of the few times I actually had to sniff the traffic and just see what the package is because it was easier to debug this way. I don't think I would ever had to do things like that with Python. And I think one of the reasons is that Python is much more flexible in typing and it's easier to do this sort of debugging. So you will see uh, suspicious errors or suspicious data eventually instead of uh, weird like type errors on, uh, where we would have to dig up what, what's what, what's actually the problem with it. Okay, uh, fair enough. And let's move on to lightning views. Yes. All right, speaking of BI tools, Superset released a new version of 1.3.2. It's a patch update mainly of bug fixes, but if you didn't know that Superset released 1.3, it's worth mentioning that they now have uh, funnel charts and uh, they revised uh, tree map visualization. I think there is some other tree-like visualization they have now. Apache Beam 2.3.0 was released and there are several improvements. One of them is, for example, upgrade of Calcit and they added a new data frame extra to Python SDK, which makes development of Python pipelines for Apache Beam more comfortable. NiFi has released uh, an update. It's version 1.15, and the main feature is that now you can have some sort of inheritance in parameter context when you develop your pipelines. Apache Ratis is not a very well-known product, but it's an open-source implementation of Raft Protocol. For those of you who are interested, Raft Protocol is a consensus protocol, strong, strong consensus protocol, and usually when you develop your own distributed system, you have to write one protocol yourself, but now it's implemented for you by Apache Rites project. Airflow 2.2.2 was released and uh, it's uh, just a bunch of bug fixes. So take a look at the changelog and if you find something that you struggled with, I believe there are a couple of major ones. And also NUTS, which is message queue, another message queue in our issue is uh, released, uh, have released 2.6.5 version and it's just a bunch of uh, patches and bug fixes. That's all. Yes, that's what you typically expect from a patch release. Basically, yes. And that's uh, all lightning news and let's move on to our discussion today we wanted to discuss data frames 
and are they actually necessary or if, if you can write everything in clean tools that your language of choice provides uh, should you just ditch data frames and use that instead or maybe write your own dsl what's your opinion on that pasha Okay, the first question which arises is what is actually a data frame, right? Yeah. And from a helicopter view, data frame is like just an abstraction of a tables, table-like structure. It may be a SQL, ta SQL table in our database, and it may be CSV file, it may be Excel file, or anything else which can be, that can be represented as table. So you would say that a typical data frame has rows, columns, and the data in, in the columns. So it's a two-dimensional array, right? Yeah, but there are several specific things. First thing, I believe that usually columns have some sensible names, or maybe non-sensible, but it strongly depends on you. And in a two-dimensional array, we don't have any anything like column name if we don't at least in typed languages, because you can store a strongly typed uh, header, actually. The other thing is, I believe, data frame is different from usual tables, is that it can be joined with another data frame, like anything. And it's actually the power of Spark. Spark itself is, has not too interesting API, but the thing that you can join your relational database with some obscure Excel file makes it kind of interesting thing because it it will it would be hard to perform the the same thing without specific API and specific libraries and specific adapters. Actually, data frame is your adapter. So we can say that data frame is an abstraction layer over your table or data that can have a different, uh, how you say, you, you can have two different data frames with different source initial, but then you can merge them and do whatever you like. Yeah, you, you can work with them almost in SQL-like manner. But on the other hand, for me, it sounds like kind of natural that Excel is a data frame processor. Of course, nobody calls it this way, but Excel has all those operations which data frame usually has. It has something like uh, add column. You can build a new column with, with the function which accepts uh, values from other columns and functions from other columns and so on. You can uh, join different sheets of your Excel workbook together. You can merge data and you can handle it in basically any possible way. You can multiply matri matrices in Excel. And yeah, we have multiple program API to work with data frames. The most well-known are, I believe, Pandas and Spark. R. I would say R is most well-known. Do you really do you really think in data engineering world? Well, um, yeah, that's actually a question, but if it uh, stays so in the, the data engineering world. Okay. Okay, let's agree once and for all that R is not related for data engineering. Yeah, at least R can, can work with uh, data frames too. Uh, for example, everything built on top of something clear spark clear and uh everything built on top of dupler is actually work with data frames they have this dupler thing which can 
translate everything you code to for to different SQL dialects in Spark. It, it it would be a SparkQL, and in different things it would be different dialects. But basically, it's all the same. And yeah, for them, for Dupler, it, its backend is SQL, and its frontend is basically a data frames. So if why not just learn SQL and use. Uh temporary SQL database for all your manipulations instead of using data frames. Like TrinityDB, right? TrinityDB or even SQLite if it fits on your machine. Yeah, SQLite has some issue. We should put data into SQLite some way. For example, putting data from Excel to SQLite can be troublesome, I believe. You should write some boilerplate code to extract data from SQL and put it into SQLite. Uh, most probably you don't want to. Uh, when you have pandas, you don't need to do such things. And actually, JetBrains is going to release a data frame API too. It's, it's called just data frame right now. It's stored in Kotlin repository and on GitHub. It's open source. And of course, you can read everything uh, from any location. Like, Of course, we, we don't support everything right now, but it's quite easy to write your own adapter. But our question was, do we really need data, frame, data frames at all, right? Yeah. For example, for Kotlin, I was told that it's a great language to write DSLs in. Yeah. And uh, why would you need a separate data frame extension for that if you can just be clever about the way you use it? Yeah. Data frame extension is just a DSL written for you. That's everything, actually. Well, of course, we could, we could, JetBrains could not provide users with any standard library, but they decided, like, make it more Python-like at a little, a bit more batteries. For example, I don't know what's the situation now, but five years ago, Java had no any sensical API to recursively delete directories or gather all names of all files in all directories and the current. And of course, in Python, it's sold for, I don't know, 20 years, 25 years, like forever. Well, I mean, it was it was there always. The other strong side of uh, is Kotlin, is, it's actually type. TSL uh, for data frame won't let you perform some invalid operation, like subtract uh, integer from string, you name it. A anything uh, which types can save you from, data frame can potentially save you from when we're talking about Kotlin data frame. And yes, uh, returning back to the question, why data frame API and not some SQL? Actually, I can think of two reasons. I would argue that uh, data frames is something you use at when you explore the data. And when you explore the data, it's perfectly fine to delete, divide integer by string and see some error or not see an error and just see some weird values and then figure out what's wrong with it. So why would you stress that you actually need a new language, a new extension in this context? Yeah, you know, there is a type of situations I don't like. For example, I have some... 20 gigabyte CSV file or XML file. It's uh, natural state. It's very easy to find such a big CSV file. And then I'm starting to work on it and like wrangle data and all the things. And it works into it works and it takes five sec ten five seconds five minutes ten minutes and then it fails with error because I tried to delete something or, or to divide something by zero or I tried to I don't know subtract uh, integer from string and uh, okay now I should find this uh, now my ten minutes are spent spent wasted I mean I won't return them. Ever. I don't see how having types at the initial state would help you in this situation. Yeah, of course, having types will help me because if I will track, try to 
subtract integer from string, the code won't compile. And if I will try to divide something by zero, at least ID give, will give me a warning that I'm trying to perform something potentially dangerous because it knows that you can divide by zero, right? But uh, aren't we talking about runtime? No, uh, type, type, typing in the Kotlin data frame is a compile time thing. It's not runtime thing. I still don't get it. How would types save you in this situation? For example, I can write Python code that will just has a try except loop. It will caught the same errors. And uh, if I had types, I would just expect, uh, I, I would just try to catch another error. It would be like a conversion error or something. Yeah, it's a question. If you are, tr if you are checking your types like in Python, in runtime, typing as in Python doesn't make too much sense. But in, in Kotlin, you will see that you are trying to perform incorrect operation on the place during compile time. Like, you don't need to catch any errors because you already see that your operation is invalid. I still don't understand. You don't know in advance what would be the types of your CSV file, right? Because you read it in runtime. Uh, yeah, but I believe there are two approaches how to solve this. First thing is what Spark does. We can infer schema from, for example, first hundred or thousand uh, lines of CSV. And inference can be kind of good, kind of predictive. And other thing we can say that we have typed data frame, like we can define strict type for, for it. And then... So you mean you define the types at a compile time, but you actually read it at uh, runtime? Yeah. But if uh, CSV actual typing won't match it's at some step, at some early step, my requested type, of course, it will fail and, say, and it will say that on line like 1002, you have incorrect type in your CSV. It may be, it could be incorrectly inferred, inferred or you could define incorrect class, but still it's very easy to fix and you don't have to wait for too long time to find such an error. But you would still need to wait until your parser gets to that line and you will still spend those 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah, not, not 10 minutes because I believe I have types on, on every step. So if on, on each step types should be checked, I believe. Yeah, it's, you know, I'm kind of fanatic of type languages because of that. I believe the types should be everywhere and we should check them every all the time and we, do, we, we, we should not appear in situation when in runtime we get some weird type exception and also it it won't be actually the case for parquet files for example or for rc files which are already strongly typed right so for csv you may be partially correct and for parquet files you are not oh it's again a, qu a question of uh, difference between schema on write and schema on on read. Yeah, but um, for parquet files, it's schema. For parquet, it's all the time. Yeah, it's all the time because it's predefined and you actually can change it because formatism format itself is immutable. I would like to recur return to previous question uh, of data frames versus SQL. And of course, it makes sense to know SQL, but SQL has some drawbacks. I love SQL, but it has some drawbacks. It's very testable. It's hard to write as a testable SQL code, and it's almost not composable. When you have lots of data pipelines at your company, you usually want to reuse some pieces of code, some usual casual utility methods and so on. Well, then you write stored procedures. Yeah, 
you you absolutely can write sort procedures you still don't have version stored procedures if you want to call them version one version two and so on versioning is sometimes important because we want we want to know how our code base grows and for stored procedures i believe it won't work this way in well usual usual and simple workflows in this sense writing your own udfs your own common handling logics is much easier and much more maintainable still sql is an awesome language but one more thing it's almost not extensible because uh, you should for hive for example you can write some piece of java code it will be creepy java code but you can re re register this java code in hive as udf but if, for example if you are using athena inside aws you won't be able to provide your own UTFs there and it's a huge well you, you can then you can have like a stored procedures on a step before that and you can be clever about versioning as well yeah 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 of course uh the proposed uh, solution by aws if i understand correctly is to yes uh, is to use amazon lambda which will uh, you know yeah process data in some custom way but i don't really think but then, then again you you can't really you will need to take a special care about versioning and it would be yeah and it increases complexity a lot while writing code is basically the same and when we are talking about pandas as uh, the more the most popular i believe the data frame library i'm not sure if things i just told are perfectly correct but it looks like you can test panda any any piece of pandas code right f, f of pandas pipeline mm, well you can test uh, as in unit test or as in what well, sort of test in, uni in unit test i believe the unit tests are the most important and the cheapest way to test your pipelines i would say that testing your data pipeline with unit tests is the easy way to test them but not uh, automatically they required and uh, something that will help you in the future you might have a perfect unit test coverage in your data pipeline still your pipeline will fail yeah by the way there are folks uh, the company is called synthesized and they're doing very interesting thing there they explore your sql and they give you data set which will co cover all possible edge cases of your query but they can't do the same for example for usual spark data frame pipeline it's much more complex thing. Uh, still, when we are talking about strongly typed languages, I believe testing is easier. Uh, we can use some uh, property-based tests, which will generate data for us. And they will give us not code coverage, but possible data coverage. And that's why I love, I love property-based testing, but it's completely another topic. Well, I was asking about SQL compared to data frames is because once I got a bit more comfortable with SQL. I found out that it's often easier for me to just write a bunch of SQL code before downloading it to my data frame or accessing it in my data frame for in, in another way. And I got really annoyed by the API that data frame forces me to use because it felt unnatural compared to cleaner SQL-like syntax. Aside from a couple of operations, most of the time I would prefer just figuring out the proper SQL 
uh, syntax and uh, functions and maybe write in a couple of uh, start procedures as well over using that frames or using like pandas with all this crazy api yeah we know that there is a company called linguleo and they're teaching Russian people uh, English language and they uh, have rewritten all the code from I don't know what to PostgreSQL and it works perfect for them. If it works for you, it's perfect solution. Question here is maintainability. How expensive it will, uh, will it be to find new developer, new data engineer who will be able to understand your code and support it. I would argue that right now there are more people who are capable of writing Postgres stored procedures than people who will use the Kotlin data frame lab. Absolutely. I fully agree with that. Absolutely agree. But I think that it's not enough. I don't believe that there are enough people who can read, for example, 500 lines SQL. And it's what we can usually can see in data analytics world actually, world actually. What do you mean? People can't read a SQL in data analytics world? Yeah, uh, no, 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 no. I mean, people can't understand the very long SQL queries, which they didn't write themselves. Oh yeah, that's true. I would say that I know a few analysts who uh, could treat SQL as write-only language and easy. it's easier for them to just rewrite everything from scratch every time they need to adjust their the, the script they wrote maybe like half a year ago. But that's also the case for computer languages as well. A lot of people do that. Yeah, and that's, I would say that it's the place where data frame, different data frame APIs excel because you can refactor your code and make it understandable, more understand, at least more understandable. And usually it's very simple refactoring. You're just performing control X, control V to separate methods and that's all. You're done. You you have uh, you took part of your logics from your huge pipeline to several to separate method, and that's all. Okay, I don't think we arrived to any conclusion about whether data frames are useful or not. Let us know in uh, data engineering Slack or in Twitter or anywhere. We will be happy with any feedback. Yes, and uh, briefing is over. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. See ya.